Sports Professor Rick Harrow, and we are on the record. Every week, this podcast will take you inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, the top deal-making issues, the top tech issues, and the top social responsibility issues, plus a blockbuster interview with someone who you might not have heard from in the world of sports, but having a profound effect on its impact. Let's get started. Sports Professor Rick Harrow into the $1.3 trillion business of sports. And you're on the record. Boy, what a show we have today. How about Lou Holtz? We'll keep you waiting until segment two, but I will tell you right now, he is well worth waiting for. Before we start, our weekly opening drive, the top four stories of the week, one to four. Number one, the world's most watched sports commercials revealed from Be Like Mike to the Showdown, the Gambling Zone, recently conducted a study analyzing Google search data, YouTube views, and written content to put together a list of the most loved sports commercials of all time. In their findings, Nike dominated with six of the top ten commercials, including the most watched on the list, Nike's Right the Future ad, close to 10 million views on YouTube. Gambling Zone's metrics weren't entirely based on YouTube, though. Number one sports commercial of all time coming in with a score of 8.6 slash 10 in their metrics. How about Gatorade's Be Like Mike? Remember that, the 60-second commercial released in 1991, featuring Michael Jordan playing basketball with children and the overall family-oriented tone. Commercial, a premier example of how the marketing around Michael Jordan and the NBA evolved in the 90s. A flux of ads portraying Jordan as a family man rather than as focusing on his spectacular athletic abilities, and we knew them. The movement was due to a variety of off-court controversies that surrounded the NBA in the 80s, giving the league stereotypes that they looked to combat in the ensuing decades. While Nike dominated Gambling Zone's list, other brands in the top 10 included McDonald's, The Showdown, again featuring Jordan, Coca-Cola, Hey Kid Catch, Mean Joe Green, remember that, Under Armour's Protect This House campaign that put him on the map, Adidas, made its name on the list of the most Googled ads of all time with their Impossible is Nothing campaign, garnered 415,000 Google searchers. The world's most popular sports commercials are successful for a variety of reasons. Power, comedic effect, or pulling on your heartstrings, but they all share the common trait of being able to pull at human emotion and evoking a feeling out of the viewer in a very short period of time. It may not even be directly selling a product, but it creates an idea, an aura, and a persona. Clearly, number one. Number two, NBA, the opening night on ESPN, the most watched in 11 years. The first two games of the season on ESPN generated an average audience of 2.76 million in the U.S., up from 1.53 in 2022 in the opening doubleheader, up 80% from last year. The Celtics' victory over the Knicks averaged 2.55 million viewers, peaking with 4.35 million in 2012 and 76% over last year's early game. The Knicks and the Grizzlies, the San Antonio Spurs, and the Dallas Mavericks, the regular season game, most watched excluding Christmas Day. Yeah, why not with Wembanyama? We'll talk about him more, but clearly that's a big deal. And that's number two. Number three, Nike missed revenue projections for the first time in two years. 
They failed to live up to Wall Street's expectations, still managed to exceed them in other areas. Quarter 1, 2024, Nike reported $12.94 billion in revenue, 2% increase from last year. Short of the $12.98 billion financial information the company had projected. That's projecting ahead for the quarter, same time this year versus last year. Perceived struggles overall could be chalked up to poor sales figures in North America, Nike's biggest market, where revenue fell by about 2%. However, the company offset that with sales increases in other regions and look for increases over time. Obviously, a big deal. Number three. Number four, a trend that we're going to see more and more of, Texans use Evlov frictionless security screening tech at NRG Stadium. They're deploying the weapons detection systems in NRG, an activation which began with the combined AI and sensor technology, the first preseason game in August. The process focuses on the ability to distinguish between weapons and everyday items on event attendees' persons as they ingress, expediting a process once dominated by traditional metal detectors or manual screening. So when everybody walks through a stadium these days and does not see the cumbersome metal detectors, make no mistake, everybody is watching. And as you might expect, the technology continues to evolve. And I would just say really, really important in an era where gun prevention in a mass spectator facility is obviously important. Texans are the 12th team to partner with Evlov, a list that includes the Pittsburgh Steelers, Tennessee Titans, SoFi Stadium, which of course is the Chargers and the Rams, and Gillette Stadium. Evlov has more than 40 sports partners spanning MLB, MLS, and the NHL. In addition, to the NFL, something obviously incredibly important. That's number four. So those are the top opening drive stories, and the special guest of the week needs no introduction. Lou Holtz, born on January 6, 1937, in Follinsby, West Virginia, son of a bus driver. Basically, he has that in common with Nick Saban. We've talked about that before. He also attended Kent State and then graduated in 59 with a degree in history He played linebacker for the Golden Flashes, and you might expect that here is the key to his personality. He stood 5'10 and 152 as a linebacker. He won 249 games, 33rd all-time, a national championship with the Irish in 1988, the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2020, and he retired from coaching in 2004, but we know him as an active broadcaster, pundit, and now a good friend. Elected to the College Football Hall of Fame in 2008, Lou Holtz, a tremendous perspective. Here he is now. The coaching legacy is great. We'll get into a lot of that. But so it's January 6, 1937, and you're in this world. You're not sure of your senses because you were just born. Did you have any idea at any time that you were going to be destined down the road to be one of the most successful coaches in history? Oh, absolutely not. I, let's remember, I was born during the Depression. My father had a third-grade education. I was born in a cellar. We had two rooms, a bedroom for myself, my sister, my parents, and a kitchen and a half bath. And 
that bath did not have a tub of shower sick. There was no welfare, no food stamps, no safety net. Nobody from our family had ever gone to college, let alone graduate. So I had no intentions. All I wanted was a job at the mill, a car of $5, uh, and who could ask for more than that? So it's just amazing how people affect your life. And I'm here because I've had so many great people guide me and help me. You're here also because you uh, almost won 250 games, I guess one short, 132 and seven in a turbulent uh, world of college football over so many schools. That's hard to do, I think. And when you take a look at your career, which is primarily college, we'll get to the Jets in 76 in a second. uh, The thing that strikes me about all those schools is the diversity, the different cultures, the different structures. Were there commonalities as a head coach? that you found early on in all of those programs that could you, uh, you could use to increase the likelihood of your success? Well, that's a great observation because when you coach at Arkansas, it's different than coaching at William & Mary, etc., and you have to adjust to it. But you have to have a philosophy. And my philosophy is very, very simple. Life is nothing more than a matter of choices. Wherever you are, good or bad, it's because of choices you make. You do drugs, drop out of school, join a gang, get tattoos from all over, get arrested. You're choosing to have difficulty in life, and please stop blaming me for the choices you make. So all I've ever tried to do was teach the athletes. I never felt I coached football. I felt I coached life. Just make good choices. And it doesn't matter whether you're a football player, a husband, a father. If you make good choices, things are going to be positive. As you got more experienced in the what's my next job role, because you had many and you held them well, uh, were there certain things you looked for in the administration, in the funding, in the relationships that would cause you to be more comfortable, let's say, as you chose Arkansas after the Jets or as you chose Minnesota after Arkansas and on and on? I, I wished I was smart enough to do that, but <laughs> I felt that every situation had potential to win if I could contribute to it. And what's important is how you approach the team the first meeting. And one of the first things I would say to them is, I know you had no idea who would be your coach, nor did you have a say in who would be your coach. You didn't have a vote. And if you did have a vote, I wouldn't be here because many of you are going to judge me predicated upon what you heard about me as a disciplinarian. I understand that. But what I want you to understand, I had a choice. I had a great job, a great family, a great home. I didn't need to move. Why did I move? Because I thought if we worked together, we could really accomplish something special. And so that's how I approached basically every job. Well, and as you got into that first meeting, uh, and we'll talk, believe me, about NIL and Transfer Portal and all of those things. I don't want to get you wound up too early in the interview. But on all of those items, as you see coaches moving from place to place, uh, and you know, some would say leaving the students behind. Others would say going for an opportunity like anybody else in any profession. Uh, did you feel like there was an extra presumption kind of against your credibility because you've come in from somewhere else? Or, or, or would it be easier if you come in from the inside? Uh, you know, talk about that. Well, when you take over a job, you understand you aren't going to be the most popular guy because everybody else wanted somebody else. Your second day, you can't remember this guy's name. The third day, you don't recruit this guy's cousin. And next thing you know, you build up an awful lot of animosity among you. But, you know, the most I made... And Notre Dame was 115,000. And as after my sixth year, we had won the national championship, enlarged the stadium, 
signed the NBC contract, so they raised my salary from 95000 to 115000 But money was never that important to me. I think being happy with your family and being happy when you looked in the mirror was, was far more important. But, you know, coaches making $8, 9000000 million a day. So what happened? The coaches started chasing the money. Then the players started chasing the money, and that's why we have the NIL today. And then pretty soon now, the schools are chasing the money. They're going from this conference that guy. How in the world do you have a Big Ten with Southern Cal and UCLA in it and Rutgers on the other coast? It, it makes absolutely no sense to me. It used to be a time you joined a conference because you shared many things in common. You had the same academic standards, so to speak. You are pretty close to geographically. And you had the same objectives as far as uh, athletics are concerned and academic. But that's no longer the case. Now it's all about the money, and I think that's unfortunate, which I'm sure we'll get into later. The buyout clauses, look, it's a free market. Every agent tries to negotiate as high a buyout as you possibly can. On the one side, if a coach were uh, a shareholder in a public corporation, he'd get big dollars and people wouldn't think about it twice. On the other hand, these players rely on the coaches, and you shouldn't be able to move at a moment's notice regardless of what the contract says, there's somewhere in the middle. So talk about that one for a minute, you know, coaches staying put or not. Well, when I first started this profession, a coach was in a school like forever. Bear Bryant was in Alabama, Ben Schwartz, Waller at Syracuse, and Joe Paterno, Delroy. They didn't move around, but they also had security. But it's just crazy the lack of loyalty that we have. And I find the lack of loyalty by people in general. Towards life, I, I think loyalty is one of the greatest assets you could possibly have. What do you think is going to happen long term? Transferring to the transfer portal slash NIL, I'm combining those issues for obvious reasons because those two wouldn't work as well without the other one. So I, I think an athlete should be paid okay. if he works at McDonald's, but he should be paid to go to college. He gets a free education, he gets tutor, he gets the best facility, he gets all the film to make him the best athlete he can possibly be. He has the girls and the adulation of the student body, and the list goes on and on. To me, you go to college, you get an education. Why do schools have athletics? Because it's one of the greatest learning lessons you can have. On the football field, I learned more than I ever learned in a college classroom. You learned about perseverance, about teamwork, about being unselfish, about picking up off the ground, disappointment, about accepting your role, putting the welfare of other people ahead of you. And I, I, I was fortunate as an officer in the Army. Now, I learned a great deal about the military, and I coached a great deal about it. The thing about the military, this country would be better off if everybody had to spend a year in the military. We wouldn't have some of the problems we have now. Because what you learn is you have an obligation to the guy next to you. If you don't fulfill your obligation, it may cost him his life. And when you understand the obligation you have, that, that it, it just sort of focus a little bit different. But I, I think that paying athletes... It is the worst thing in the world. Uh, they're they're going to get out there without $100,000 in debt or uh, student loans, whatever else the case may be. So I, I think that has really created a problem. I think the transfer portal is going to ruin college football unless they change it. Why do I say that? Uh, when, when I was younger, I followed Major League Baseball. I can give you the starting lineup today. For the Cleveland Indians, either 48 or 54 when they won the pennant and it won the World Series. But 
I followed baseball because you had the same players year after year. Now you can't tell. You look at some of the great teams in the country today, and I think Washington, Oregon, and Southern Cal, all three have transfer quarterback. You panic with Washington. Right. Uh, Bo, Bo Nix is, is came there from Auburn to Oregon, and then the great quarterback in Southern Cal transfer from Oklahoma. You don't know the players from day after day, and the transfers, it, it just is amazing. I, I'm watching Ohio State, and Ohio State's offensive line got whipped by the defensive line of Indiana. All four of them were transfers. I don't know where they came from. If you're coaching at Kent State and you have a good player, he's going to end up transferring to Alabama or somewhere else. And you don't have many players transfer in. So the transfer portal has really ruined it, along with paying athletes. I, I, I do not miss college athletics the way it is today. But if they don't make changes, they're going to lose an awful lot of support. How do you fix it? What, what do you do when President Emmert said two years ago, two plus, athletes will be paid in some context and don't go away. We're going to give you a memo by the next July to tell you how to do it. Whoops, the memo didn't come. And then how do you deal with that? Do you put the, uh, what is it, toothpaste back in the tube, Judy back in the bottle, what you, <laughs> whatever the metaphor is, how do you fix it? <laughs> that is a little difficult, but See, they don't have a real commissioner of college football. We need somebody to say, what's in the best interest of college football? I know they're worried about lawsuits and everything else. But perseverance, you pick a school because you want that school on your diploma in the long run. You want to have the contacts there, the education, et cetera. That's why you go to a school. And, and you aren't going to always be the best football player. And you have to be patient. You have to wait your time. You, you have to have perseverance, but always put the team welfare. I've been Notre Dame. We have a quarterback uh, named Kevin McDougal out of Miami, Florida. Played behind uh, Rick Meyer for three years. Never played much at all. Finally, his fourth year, he's going to play. We have a freshman quarterback come in. It's great. Rod Pilas hurts his shoulder at practice. Can't play. Kevin McDougal leads us to 11-1 record. It was a set all kind of passing records in Notre Dame. Here's an individual just waited his time and, and be persevere. And, and you learn how to improve and to overcome your deficiencies. Everybody wants instant success today. Oh, I want I want to be the star. I want to start. I want, that's not the way life is. You also said in answer to a question over the last few months that 50 years ago or so, players were worried about uh, obligations and responsibilities. Today, they're worried about rights and privileges. I think I know, but what exactly do you mean? Well, it's really true. You know, 50 years ago, people talked about their rights and uh, talked about their obligations and responsibilities to other people, to the school, etc. And that was very, very important. Now, remember this. I, I was coached in high school, and um, mo most of my coaches five years before were fighting a war in either Europe or in the Pacific. Whatever, and they had a different approach about life, and they came back, and they felt very strongly about that. That's how I was raised. That's how I grew up. That's how I played high school football, although it wasn't very good. But I was taught the obligation, responsibilities you have is more important. Now today, everybody wants to talk about the rights and the privileges. My right, it's my privilege. Do this. That. No, I, I've seen this country change in so many different ways. I'm, trying to write a book titled Freedoms I've Lost in, in the 86 years I've been on this earth. But 
it, it's just something I believe in in the bottom of my heart. And I think I look at what made this country great. I look at what makes an athlete great. And the same thing with a business person or a teacher. It's somebody that makes good choices and you follow three rules. There's only three rules we need. You don't need a dog. You do what's right. You have any doubt, you get out the Bible. You do the very best you can. Not everybody can be All-American. Not everybody can be an A student. Everybody can be the best they can be. And the last thing you do, you always show people you care. You're never going to meet anybody again that need a smile, a kind word, encouragement. That, that's part of life. We're going to be downhearted. My, my wife, I was married for 59 years. I lost her over three years ago. And she never did an interview. She did one interview. They said, what did you learn from having cancer, Mrs. Holtz? She said, I learned how much my family loved me. We didn't love her anymore, but we showed it. Why do we have to wait for somebody to have a catastrophe before we reach out and, and help them? So those are the only three rules I've ever used in coaching, raising my children, etc. Those three rules have never let me down. You follow those three rules, you'll make Don't write choice. that book yet uh, because you're not experienced enough. You need about 10 more years of collective experience before anybody's going to let you write that book, okay? <laughs> because right now, you, you know, there's not enough there. 10 more years. I'm kidding. Write the book. It'll be a bestseller. We know it will. Let's talk about your career, your ESPN 10 years, your CBS before that. Um, reflect back on your broadcast career. Was it as hard or harder than coaching? Did it require some of the same skills? Talk about it. Well, you know, it was interesting because on television, you just talk and you think of something <laughs> to say. But I'm fortunate to be on there with a guy named Reese Davis, one of the most talented people I've ever been around, and a guy named Mark May, who I love and respect tremendously. And we had fun. I think it's important to have fun with what you're doing. If, if you have fun doing TV, people are going to have fun watching you. It's like Tom Sawyer painting the fan. Oh, is this who I'm fighting? Well, they want to pay him to be able to paint the fan. So just have fun with whatever you did. And that's all I ever tried to do was be fun and share my thoughts and ideas and my feelings from my heart. Not because of something they expected or this would be clever. This is how I feel and this is how I believe. And I, I feel this way very, very strongly. Did you ever feel like you're able to use your platform of of being a you know well-known broadcaster to uh, not change the game, but emphasize things that are important in the game? I, I, I never looked at myself being a spokesman or anything else. I just tried to follow those three rules and just say what you feel in your heart is right and proper. And sometimes I got in trouble. Yeah, it's the people you work with. I've always been fortunate to work with great people and you know, and have fun. And, you know, on ESPN, we did uh, uh, the final verdict. I think where Reese would dress up as a robot. Yeah, I remember right that. Side and Mark May would take the other side. And that was for real because, you know, Reese Davis ruled against me on Ohio State. I got so bad I tipped over the whole tripod, whatever else. Because it was wrong. And I took, I, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it as well as I can for as long as I can. And Father Hesburgh gave me some great advice when he was 92. He hired me at Notre Dame, great friend of mine. He said, Lou, I'm going to continue to do everything I can for as long as I can, and I'm going to do it as well as I can. But I'm no longer going to worry about the things I can no longer do. And that was the best advice I've ever got for a guy who's really gotten old and can't play golf the way he used to. And lo I love the game. How about being proud of your your son? Uh, you know, not only at East Carolina and South Florida at, at Louisiana Tech, but 
but also with the Stallions, that that uh, that that team, uh, you know, relative to the USFL. And and now he has a title of temporary special assistant at my alma mater, Northwestern. What is that? What is a temporary special assistant? Well, I talked to him yesterday. He doesn't have anything to do with the team on the field. But the head coach had, had never been head coach. He's never defense coordinator at a major school. And Skip talked to him about recruiting, about organization, practice, things along that line. I think he could help the team if he was on the field and coach because he is an excellent coach. I met Notre Dame, but he came into my office said, Dad, I, I want to be a coach. I said, have you told your mom yet? He said, no. I said, well, make sure she's unarmed when you do because she'll shoot you. Door. But he wanted to go into coaching. So I wrote five different coaches. One of them was Tom Osborne. One of them uh, was Bobby Bowden at Florida State about a graduate assistant for him. And Bobby Bowden hired him at Florida State. And they had great success there. And he, he just he's a he, great with people. He's I've known him most of his life. He's the most positive person I've ever been around. He's always upbeat, et cetera, and, and gets along well with everybody. So I am very proud of him, but I'm proud of also our other three children as well. They all graduated from college and married and are happily married, and that's all you can do. You know, I don't care what you accomplish in this world. If you aren't successful as a husband and a father, you fail. So I always felt that that was the most important role I had was to be a good father and a good husband. 34 years as a head coach, the best game, best win, you're not going to say best win, we have a number of them. Is it the 1988 Notre Dame season at the Fiesta Bowl, or, or that's got to be among them? What 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 would you say to the best win question? Well, 88 was a great year. We beat six teams in the top 10 in the final poll, won the national championship. We had a better team in 89. We, we went 11-0, and 0 and then we got upset on the road. But the greatest win, and probably turned my life around, was at Arkansas. My first year there, we, we get invited to the Orange Bowl to play Oklahoma. And the last time Oklahoma had played Arkansas, Arkansas lost them like 106 to nothing. So everybody was all excited. Uh, but then I had to suspend three athletes and scored 78% of their touch, of our touchdowns for the year. And that's a fact, 78%. Now, I'm not a disciplinarian. I never disciplined an individual my entire life. But I am going to enforce the choices you make. You choose to do this, you choose to do that, you're choosing to not play in the game. And so I had to enforce the choice they made. All of a sudden, we have a boycott on our team. We became the largest underdog that's ever been in the major bowl. We get down there and, and we beat them 31 to 6 and the game really wasn't as close as score would indicate. Well, I will tell you this. I am a proud and honored to be part of this. I'm really excited that you gave me the time, but also excited that you remain a vibrant force in the business of college football and life. Coach, Coach Holtz, thank you very much. Lou Holtz, what a statesman, what an icon. Obviously, you can't get enough of Lou Holtz, and he's become a friend. We'll have more from him as the season and years progress. But now it's time for our weekly grab bag, the top tech, gambling, and philanthropic issues of the week. And we start with tech. Number one, how NBA teams are using sport radars data collection platform they're leveling up the data offerings in partnership with the NBA as the league embarks on its first campaign using Hawkeye innovations 
as its raw data provider. And starting this season, Hawkeye will have 14 cameras rigged in standardized locations on each NBA arena to elect 3D pose tracking data derived from the ball and 29 points on each player's body. It's unbelievable. It's a system with richer potential than the prior one, which used only six cameras and generated 2D data off a single center of mass data point for each player. The new cameras shoot at 60 frames per second, delivering sub-second latency for collection and 30-second latency to be displayed in Sports Radar Synergy Sports Program. The underlying data is much faster, more detailed, and used by NBA teams and select media partners. The Synergy web platform combines statistics and video to provide detailed, compartmentalized play-type data, like, say, Nikola Jokic's scoring passing frequency and efficiency in transition, or the half-court, including pose tracking data that can even further augment that existing data. More sophisticated shot contest data is one of the more commonly discussed potential use cases for skeletal tracking, and for good reason. Determining the direction of a defender and its facing in the exact positioning of their limbs unlocks a different layer of insight than knowing only the distance between one body and another, which is a center of mass data points reason for existing. And already in that Synergy platform are fresh insights on player drives, picks, speed load, among others, that are enabling Hawkeye's input. And while all 30 NBA teams have access to the broader Synergy platform, 17 are signed on for that extra layer this season. That's the excitement of the new data the NBA is providing when it comes to things like visualization. When you create a person in 3D and show the example to a coach and a player, that's exactly where your position was, limb to limb, fingertips to toes, and in the case of Webinyama, who knows how high, 3D virtualization will not be widely available until next season, but it's raw data for teams to utilize today, and having that new information will be a potential feature whose models provide a whole new exciting frontier when it comes to helping coaches and scouts and front offices make decisions without having to build all those models internally. Credible. Important. That's number one. Number two, on the tech side, is something that's going to be important in the future as well. CPKC Stadium with the Kansas City Current partner with Good Energy Solutions to install solar panels, and the National Women's Soccer League franchise have partnered with this company to provide sustainability and install new solar panels at the stadium. The solar panels will be installed on top of the stadium's main gate entrance and the team store for maximum sun exposure. Good Energy Solutions will also receive the use of marks, in-game signage, and social posts, and both parties to work together to produce a marketing strategy on the importance and details of installing the solar panels. The current home stadium, which landed a 10-year naming rights deal with rail network CPKC earlier this month, will be the first to have built specifically for a women's soccer club. The installation of solar panels through the Good Energy Solutions Partnership will see the array produce roughly 100,000 kilowatt hours of energy annually, roughly equivalent to burning 70,000 pounds of coal. It's targeting a LEED Gold certification 
which would make it one of the only few stadiums to reach this achievement. The agreement with Good Energy Solutions puts the venue one step closer to being among the leaders of top solar adapters at a sports stadium in North America, according to a study provided by the Industry Association power generated by NWSL facilities each year, enough energy to charge 150 million smartphones. But just look at this as a new trend. Federal incentives potentially might be available for this, enhancing the chance of adoption. That's tech two. Tech three, about injury prevention technology, really important, with the proper safety parameters, Physical jobs can be healthy as well. Most labor workers have above-average cardiovascular health, but they also have muscular skeletal higher injury rates. What if we can reduce the rates and increase the health? Well, unfortunately, research has indicated that most workplace injury prevention programs are ineffective at reducing injury risks. These programs often fail to personalize alerts and coach workers to optimize their specific job task movements, and countless variables are credible, but when we bring advanced sports technology into the workplace, we can individualize at scale in real time. In the same way Formula One drives everyday automotive innovations, the goal of keeping high-salaried professional athletes in their sport steered wearable technology innovation, and we know where that's going technology to prevent injuries and optimize movement started in elite sport arenas over a year ago and wearable kilometer accelerometers in sports and the workplace, that's what they're calling it, it's possible to assess injury risks over long periods. Historically, a safety manager would individually assess movements, measure range of motion, identify injury risks, and wearable technology helps prevent sports injuries by tracking and identifying when an athlete is at risk of overload during a training period. It also measures the load on groups of workers to establish benchmarks relevant to their tasks. Research has indicated there's a limited reliability for observation and opinion-based task safety assessments between safety pros. Humans are subjective by nature, and how they observe and record movement with individuals will vary, but a safety pro can use a simple process, placing sensors on a worker while taking smartphone video of the job task, making data easy to review, workplace safety injury prevention data needs to be displayed in an easy-to-use format, and a sports science-backed workplace injury prevention can do that as well. The injury prevention scale gives you some technological advances to be able to prevent and control injuries, and that is clearly one of the issues that's very important. Obviously, the tech drives the details today and more to follow. How about sports gambling? Very important as we look at what the industry is doing in the future. And the Sports Gambling Minute today focuses on Florida. The U.S. Supreme Court gave a go-ahead to an appeals court ruling that could help lead to the Seminole Tribe of Florida offering online sports betting throughout the state. The court lifted a temporary hold that Chief Justice John Roberts placed October 12 on a ruling by the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the District Court of Columbia. 
in a lawsuit about gambling reaching 2021 by the tribe and the state, the deal known as a compact. The paramutual companies, West Flagler Associates and Benita Fort Myers Corp., have also filed a lawsuit at the Florida Supreme Court, arguing sports betting violates the 2018 state constitutional amendment that required voter approval of casino gambling. That case remains pending. And the note, the compact, addressed a series of issues. The lawsuit has centered on part of the deal that would allow gamblers to place mobile sports wagers anywhere in the state, bets handled by computer servers on the tribal property. Nova Southeastern University professor Bob Jarvis said that the decision doesn't mean gamblers are able to play sports bets in Florida soon, but the Seminoles are trying to fend off the separate challenge to the compact with the Florida Supreme Court. And according to Jarvis, uh, that case could take up to three years to be finalized. The Seminoles in 2021 briefly rolled out the Hard Rock Sportsbook mobile app amid the legal wrangling, but stopped accepting wagers and deposits. It's up in the air, but this court ruling moves it slightly in the right direction. That's your Sports Gambling Minute and the law behind it. Finally, good sports. Number of issues this week. Number one, the Commander's Charitable Foundation contributed 35000 to leveling the playing field supporting installation of seven equipment drop-off bins throughout the area of Maryland, Virginia, and the D.C. region. Youth sports, and particularly football, have grown prohibitively expensive for underserved communities, proud to support the leveling playing field mission of expanding access and lowering the barriers. LPF has collected and contributed and distributed more than 12 and a half million dollars worth of sports equipment to 1,800 schools. Good for them. Executive Director of Leveling the Playing Field says ability to partner with the commanders is going to help even more. Another example of the ownership change in Washington and how positive it's become. Next, Good Sports focuses on Wake Forest. The men's basketball team holds a charity game in support of stroke research and awareness. October 29, World Stroke Awareness Day, and the Wake Forest basketball team and Atrium Health partnered to raise money and awareness for the disease and survivors. The bottom line is even kids are focused on this. And Sarah Lycan, Atrium Health's stroke prevention manager, said the game was important in bringing the disease to young people's attention. The surgery has impacted the parents of some of the basketball players, and clearly they have been motivated by awareness, not only of the issue, but on their own bodies. And then finally, number three, the Bonacani Fund to cure paralysis 38th annual Sports Legends Dinner honored celebrities, donors, and others. Gloria Estefan served as mistress of ceremonies, 800 business community and civic leaders, humanitarians, charities convened the dinner, the annual Great Sports Legends honoring friend and former Miami Dolphins linebacker, who Nick Bonacani, who founded the organization 38 years ago in honor of raising money for his son, who was paralyzed in a football game. Over the past 38 years, 
The fund has honored more than 400 sports legends and humanitarians and raised more than, let me slow down to give you this, raised more than $130 million for the Miami Project Spinal Cord Injury Research Programs. It is an honor to report this. It was an honor to work with Nick Bonacani and participate in his causes. Well, that's the good sports issues of the week. The weekly grab bag, tech, gambling, and philanthropy, more special than ever. It's time, as we do every week, for the three to watch. What are we looking for in the future? Well, number one, Adam Silver's concerned about young fans finding NBA games. The collapse of regional sports networks and accelerating cord cutting is impacting every major sports league. The NBA is looking for a $75 billion total. And the focus on teams at the local level, such as the Utah Jazz, Phoenix Suns, who have already moved to broadcast-based models due to rapid changes in the RSN market and traditional way going away anytime soon. He says, I don't believe so, but we want to be on the same page as all of those platforms. Look in the future, as we said, about Amazon, what they might do about Tuesday night basketball or Thursday night basketball, something to watch. Number two, the LPGA coming to New England for a tournament in 2024. FM Global, a Rhode Island-based commercial insurance firm, has committed to increasing the purse by $300,000 and bringing an event to an LPGA venue and giving access to a very significant Boston and New England market. U.S. Women's Open contested at Pebble Beach, Women's PGA at Baltusrol, but the events in Boston will be important in the future, and that's what the LPGA is looking at, so that's number two. And then finally, number three, Jason Kidd joins Oakland Roots and Seoul SC for the ownership of a USL team in Oakland. The focus of professional sports in Oakland after the Raiders leave and left and the A's leave and left, really important and the plan to build a 10,000-seat temporary stadium, a parking lot near the Oakland Coliseum, may be more important than anything else as the next pioneer move into Oakland with sports. They'll find a more permanent solution later, but the fact that there is a major commitment will be very important as we go forward. Those, mark my words, are the three to watch in the future. Well, thanks, everybody, for a seminal iconic show. Join us when we go on the record next week and the week after. Sports Professor Rick Harrow, speak with you soon.